Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Mumps, the McGill University Medical Podcast Series. I'm Russ. And I'm Eric. And today we're joined by Devin Abrahami. She's a PhD student in the lab of Dr. Laurent Azoulay in the Department of Epidemiology at McGill. And she recently published a paper in the British Medical Journal. It's called DPP-4 Inhibitors and Incidence of Inflammatory Bowel Disease Among Patients with Type 2 Diabetes, a Population-Based Cohort Study. So welcome to the show, Devin. Thanks for having me, guys. So to start off, why don't you just give us a brief uh, synopsis of the paper and sort of the rationale behind the study uh, and what you guys found? Sure. So the objective of our study uh, was to determine whether this class of drugs used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes, they're called the DPP-4 inhibitors, was associated with the incidence of IBD. Uh, the reason we are interested in studying this is because we focus on the long-term safety of anti-diabetic agents in our group, and there have been a bunch of conflicting biological and clinical studies on this topic, but there hasn't been any observational work done, so we thought we would be the first to give it a go and see what we found. Uh, so what we did was we conducted a population-based cohort study using data from the UK, and we investigated a group of patients newly treated with anti-diabetic drugs over a certain time period. And what we found was that compared with the use of other anti-diabetic agents, the use of DPP-4 inhibitors is associated with a 75% increased risk in the incidence of IBD. And this risk was particularly elevated between three and four years of cumulative duration of use and after two to four years um, of time since initiation. Uh, so overall, this is the first study to show that these drugs may be associated with IBD, uh, which could have certain clinical implications. Um, and that's pretty much a vague overview of what we did. Oh, fantastic. Um, so just to let our, our viewers and our listeners know, um, this article actually went viral after it was published, um, achieving an altmetric score of over 300, uh, which is very impressive. Um, so Russ, do you have any questions for Devin to kind of get things started? Yeah, sure. So first off, Devin, congratulations on your paper. Truly an outstanding job well done. What I'd like to start off today's conversation is looking at the rationale behind your paper in the first place. What made you say, hey, DPP-4 inhibitors might be related to inflammatory bowel disease? Uh, sure. So the drug itself, it's used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. So it lowers uh, blood glucose, as do all drugs used in this disease. Um, but the enzyme it works on, which is the DPP-4 enzyme, is also involved in immune function. And IBD is an autoimmune condition. So we thought that there could maybe be something else going on. Um, of course, when you take a drug and you are doing something in your body that your body maybe doesn't want and it's not natural, there can be certain adverse effects associated with that. Um, so we thought that via inhibiting this enzyme, there might be other unintended effects 
with respect to immunity and autoimmune conditions rather than just the effects of lowering blood glucose as the drug is meant to do. Um, and this was kind of brought on by the biological and clinical evidence, uh, specifically some clinical data showing that patients with IBD have lower serum DPP-4 enzyme concentrations compared to healthy controls. And when you have low serum DPP-4 enzyme levels, uh, that's actually associated with increased IBD disease activity. So we thought that there might be something more, there might be more to the story with the enzyme itself. So because of that, we were interested in looking at these drugs which inhibit the enzyme. Okay, interesting. So there's some evidence to show that there's an underlying association between DPP-4 inhibitors and IBD. It would be really interesting to see what exactly that underlying mechanism is that links the two entities together. And I'm sure we'll see more information revealed as uh, time goes on and more studies are done. So moving on to how you explored this relationship, could you tell us a bit more about your design and how you defined your exposure variables? Absolutely. Uh, so we used data from the United Kingdom. Uh, it's called the Clinical Practice Research Data Link. And it's a very large primary care database that services over 700 general practices and collects data on over 15 million patients. So we were able to use this data in order to answer our questions and maintain sufficient power for all of our study questions. Uh, so basically what we did is we identified a base cohort of individuals who were newly treated with non-insulin anti-diabetic drugs between 1988, which is when the database started, and December 31st, 2016. So this cohort represents a group of patients with type 2 diabetes. And then the next step is within the space cohort, we identified our study cohort, who are people who were treated with a new class of drug in or after 2007, which is the year the DPP-4 inhibitors were available in the UK. So this study cohort is what we base our analysis off of. And the study cohort represents patients with poorly controlled diabetes. So that means that all these patients from 2007 and onward had to go to their physician and say, listen, I'm not feeling well. My diabetes isn't being controlled properly. And this can be tested with, of course, your HbA1c markers and other means. And that physician had to decide, am I going to put you on a DPP-4 inhibitor or am I going to put you on something else? So that's the group we want to capture. And within this group, we investigated our study question and we um, examined the exposure of interest, which was the use of DPP-4 inhibitors compared with all other anti-diabetic drugs. So depending on your use, you could fall into one of those two categories. And pretty much once you were exposed to the DPP-4 inhibitors, you remained exposed for the duration of the study period. So you could only transition to the user group, not the other way. And then we followed these people until they were either diagnosed with IBD or the study period ended, they died, or they switched practices. Okay. So you mentioned um, that the sort of end point here was IBD uh, events. I was just wondering how exactly these events are tracked um, and more specifically, how are they diagnosed to ensure uh, an accurate diagnosis of IBD? 
Uh, so the CPRD uses the read code classification for medical diagnoses and procedures. Um, so what that means is every time you have a diagnosis, uh, your GP has to record that. So for IBD, there are certain codes and they're a string of numbers and letters that your GP will put into your file after you are diagnosed with this disease. So when we're doing our study, when we have our study cohort of people with diabetes, we are then looking to see if during follow-up, one of these codes for IBD comes up. Uh, so these codes have been validated by other um, investigators who wanted to see if the CPRD captures IBD events correctly. So meaning if there is a code, does this person actually have IBD? And if there isn't a code, let's make sure they don't have IBD. And all those studies have found that the CPRD does an excellent job of recording this disease. And the positive predictive values are all above 90% uh, in those studies. And to make even more sure that we are capturing IBD diagnoses, we did a sensitivity analysis based on an algorithm whereby we were required that each IBD event be accompanied by a clinically supportive code. So that means that we checked each patient with an IBD event to see if they had a code for an endoscopy or a visit to a gastroenterologist or maybe they had abdominal pain or a prescription for mesalamine. These are all things related to IBD. So if people had one of these codes, around the time of the IBD code, we are more confident that it's a true case of IBD. And what we found in this analysis, that over 90% of our IBD codes had at least one supporting code and most had multiple codes. So we are very confident that the CPRD does a good job in capturing the incidence of IBD. Okay, so that's some very reassuring data. It sounds like uh, your team really covered all their bases. Okay, so I just want to talk a little bit about some differences that were noted between the cohorts um, uh, listed in Table 1 for those of you following along. Um, so DPP-4 users were found to be slightly older as well as having uh, higher hemoglobin A1Cs as well as higher incidence of microvascular complications. Um, some of them were also uh, on NSAIDs. I was wondering if you could comment on the differences between cohorts uh, and if this was factored into your analyses. Sure, so when you're looking at table one, uh, it's important to remember that these covariates are measured at baseline. So that's when the participants enter the study. Um, and this is all before adjustment. So, of course, there are going to be differences in the two groups as we're not randomizing. It's not a trial. Um, and everything you said is completely correct. And as the DPP-4 inhibitor users are a little bit sicker. So these drugs are used typically as second to third line agents. So in the other anti-diabetic drug group, you have people on metformin. So that's the first line treatment. Usually those people are healthy and well controlled, which is why you're seeing more indications of disease severity in the DPP-4 inhibitor group. Um, but what we did is that in every model, all of these variables were considered as confounders. Um, so what that means 
is each model actually adjusted for all of these differences to make the groups as similar as possible in analyses. Okay, so that's great that you took all of those confounding variables into account in all of your models. Now let's move on to the main findings of your study. So you found that there was a 75% increased risk in the incidence of IBD in patients on DPP-4 inhibitors. Now obviously that's relative compared to those on other diabetic drugs. It's not the absolute value. So how do we as physicians take this result with respect to your findings and and what was your absolute value? That's a great question. Um, so like you said, the 75% risk is more in uh, relative terms. So if you want to know maybe more concrete number, uh, we actually calculated the number needed to harm, which is how many patients you have to treat in order to cause one new IBD event. Uh, so what we found is that you would have to treat um, over 2,000 patients for two years uh, in order to cause one IBD event. So obviously that is a lot of patients. Uh, the incidence of IBD is pretty rare. It's not a super common disease. And these drugs, it's not going to give everyone who takes them IBD. That would be a little crazy. Uh, so this kind of absolute analysis is showing that while the effect is there and it's strong, it is still rare. So people who are on these drugs don't need to panic. There should not be any sort of uproar. However, physicians should be aware of this association for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that when they choose to start a patient on a drug, that's often when you're at the highest risk of an adverse event. So because of that, physicians should perhaps refrain from prescribing these drugs to individuals that are at a high baseline risk of IBD. Uh, so that could be patients with other autoimmune conditions or those with a family history of IBD. So that's one thing physicians should consider. And another thing is that there are patients who are on these drugs already, if they come to you and they are complaining about gastrointestinal symptoms, this should be taken seriously and these patients should be referred to gastroenterologists for further study. Okay, great. So I think that that's a very important point and it helps clarify to those who might have uh, read the articles online and freaked out that they might be at risk for IBD while on these DPP-4 inhibitors, but also very helpful for those who work in the healthcare field and are prescribing this to add an extra level of precaution when using DPP-4 inhibitors. So moving on to some questions that I had while reading your paper. Regarding the association that you found between inflammatory bowel disease and DPP-4 inhibitors, did you look into whether or not this may just be a reflection of the severity of diabetes and that those who are more severely diabetic end up getting the inflammatory bowel disease for whatever reason underlying this relationship? Uh, that's a great question, and it's something we did carefully consider in two ancillary analyses. Um, so just to give a bit of background for the listeners, um, DPP-4 inhibitors are given in second to third line, uh, meaning that these are patients who have failed on other drugs and they have more severe disease than, let's say, someone who was recently diagnosed with diabetes. Um, in this case, we felt that the use of all other anti-diabetic drugs was an appropriate comparison as 
diabetes is not an independent risk factor for IBD, but to be extra careful and to make sure that we're capturing the effect of the drug itself rather than the effect of disease severity. We did an analysis using insulin as a negative control exposure. So basically what we did is we repeated the primary analysis using insulin to see if there was a relationship between insulin and IBD. So insulin is a last line treatment used in the management of diabetes. So if you're on insulin, you are very sick. Nothing else has worked for you. You have the most severe disease. So if we're worried that the effect we see is due to disease severity, we would expect to see an even higher point estimate in the insulin analysis. Reassuringly, the point estimate in that analysis was around the null value. So we did not observe any association with insulin. And to even further this, we did a second analysis where we compared new users of DPP-4 inhibitors to new users of insulin. And in this analysis, we used propensity scores to adjust for their differences. Uh, so that's a more complicated method, but basically it's a very rigorous control for confounding variables that you will see in table one if you're following along. So in that analysis, we observed a point estimate even higher than our primary analysis, which is showing that it's likely not due to disease severity, as typically when you compare a drug to insulin, any drug looks good because insulin users are very sick. But in our case, the DPP-4 inhibitors group looked a lot worse than the insulin user group. So we are pretty confident that this is an effect of the drug itself rather than the diabetes severity. Yeah, and rightly so. It's very, very robust uh, statistical analyses that were used here. So my question is, there's been a lot of literature showing that certain medications such as NSAIDs, immunomodulators, uh, they can actually trigger a medication-induced colitis. Um, although the time lag that we see here would somewhat argue against that. And the only way to really diagnose this medication-induced colitis is to stop the medication to see if the, the disease it's associated with uh, itself stops. So I was wondering if this was analyzed at all within the study. Uh, so that's a really interesting point and maybe something we could examine in a future study. Um, our study only focused on incident IBD, so that's new cases of IBD. And once that happened, we actually stopped follow-up. So we did not look into events that were occurring in the future. Uh, so it's unclear if they maybe had a medication change after that. Um, but my guess would be they probably didn't as this effect wasn't, is, you know, it's only starting to become known um, right now. Um, another thing maybe possibly saying against that uh, medication-induced effect is that the effects are more after a couple years. We're not seeing a huge peak at the beginning. Um, and lastly, in the mechanism that we hypothesized, we felt that it would be more of an irreversible effect. So in our exposure definition, remember I said that once you are exposed, you stay exposed. You can't go back to the unexposed group. So even patients who are on the drug and then stop their person time and their follow-up is still going into the exposed group. And the rationale for that is that we feel that the effects um, on the body would be irreversible. So 
I can't be certain, and that would certainly be an interesting study question down the road. But based on the evidence we have here, it doesn't appear to be a drug-induced effect. Yeah, yeah, definitely um, an area for further research, for sure. So another question I had while reading your study was that I noticed you grouped ulcerative colitis and and Crohn's disease as inflammatory bowel disease when looking at this association. Did you look specifically at whether there was a relationship between DPP-4 inhibitors and Crohn's versus ulcerative colitis, and if there was a difference in these two different diseases? Sure. So we did do a secondary analysis by type of IBD. Uh, The reason this wasn't our primary analysis is because a lot of times when the GPs are recording the IBD, Sometimes they'll just write IBD. They won't specify if it's UC or Crohn's, um, so we call that unspecified disease. Um, So because of that, we had a lot of events in that category, and we didn't want to lose power. Um, So this became a secondary analysis where we were able to investigate the um, association stratified by disease type. And when we did that, it actually looks like the association is driven by ulcerative colitis. So in that analysis, we observed a point estimate of 2.23, which was significant, which means that users of DPP-4 inhibitors are at an over two-fold increased risk for UC when compared with all other anti-diabetic drug users. Um, However, the Crohn's disease did not show an association. Um, It's important to note, though, that Crohn's disease analysis was based off of very few events. We actually only had seven exposed events in that category, so it's likely that that analysis was underpowered. Um, The upper confidence level for that was 2.09, which means that we actually can't rule out an association with Crohn's disease. Uh, It remains possible that these drugs affect Crohn's as well. Okay, interesting. So I think in terms of Uh, moving forward as physicians, we should try to keep in mind IBD just in general for now until further studies look into that, I I suppose. Absolutely. And this is the first observational study looking at this association. So it's super important that other um, groups try to replicate our study. And if they're using different databases, maybe they'll have more power uh, to assess the ulcerative colitis question. Okay. So as a final question, um, I'd just like to ask you, what is next for the group and what's next for you sort of moving forward with this research? Um, So like I said earlier, our group focuses on the long-term safety of anti-diabetic agents. Um, So there is a drug that is more recent. Um, It came out in 2013 and the class is called the SGLT2 inhibitors. So we are shortly going to be looking at those drugs and their adverse events. Um, There have been some warnings by the FDA that these drugs are associated with some other adverse events. So we'll be starting to look at those soon. Um, And that will likely be the topic of my thesis, which hopefully I'll get to eventually. Um, I'm only in my first year of the PhD program at McGill. Uh, but this will likely continue to be my area over the next couple of years. Okay, so it sounds like you have a lot of exciting things coming your way, and I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. As we wrap things up today, what would you like the viewers to take away from today's talk? 
So our study showed that the use of DPP4 inhibitors is associated with a 75% increased risk of IBD. Uh, so this is an important adverse event that has not been previously associated with this drug. Um, so this study contributes to the overall safety profile of this class of medication, which is obviously extremely important. Um, in prescribing, you have to consider both the positives and the negatives associated with every drug. And our group focuses on giving everyone more information than what they had before. So we hope that this um, potential adverse event is now recognized and replicated in other settings. Um, so physicians should definitely be made aware of this so that they can adjust their practices accordingly if necessary. Um, but also, more importantly, um, more research is now needed in order to understand the possible mechanism behind this association, as well as the role that the DPP4 enzyme may have in the development of IBD. So this could be an interesting question for more of the basic scientists out there. Okay, thank you so much, Devin, for coming on the show. Uh, Russ and I really enjoyed hearing a little bit more about the paper and your research. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure to speak with you both, uh, especially about my research, and maybe I'll come on again in the future. Yeah, we would love that. And for our listeners out there, stay tuned for our next episode.